Hey everybody, welcome back to Mavericks and Misfits. I am glad that you have tuned in today. I hope all is well in your life. And if all is not well, I am trusting that there is copious amounts of grace for all that is not well. Um, people oftentimes feel pressured in the Christian life to put on the kind of waxed mask and you know pretend that like we don't struggle, we don't have difficult days we don't go through seasons of trial I don't know why I don't really know why that's like an important facade for Christians to keep up because um, if you're a student of the Bible you find out very quickly and very clearly that God's people go through very trying circumstances and difficult times and so don't don't bow to the pressure to pretend you have it all together um, also don't walk around being the constant sponge for sympathy and pity and for people to feel sorry for you um, there's a fine line between being honest and being you know <laughs> codependent and wanting everybody to focus on you and how rough you have it and so I think most of the time we take our issues to God first and we take our issues to God most often and when people ask us how we're doing depending on the relationship we have with the person asking we're free to tell them hey you know today's a hard day or this is a difficult season or I'm not doing well um, I try not to lie <laughs> that's like a principle for me so if somebody asks me in a particularly difficult season hey how are you doing um, if I don't really want to get into it I just say hey there's plenty of grace for me today. Lots of grace. That's my answer when things are stressed or difficult or trying or, you know, just the, the intense moments in the Christian life that we, you know, we can't describe as awesome. So let's not lie. Let's not give little fake answers, but let's also just recognize that in every difficult moment, um, we have the right to acknowledge the difficulty and that does not mean we're not a person of faith. So, Hey, guess what? That has nothing to do with what I want to talk to you about, but I just was saying, Hey, how are you? Hope it's well. And if it's not, hallelujah, there's grace for it. Um, I mentioned a few weeks ago and I appreciate your patience. A few of you had emailed and written and asked when I was going to continue the series I mentioned in that bonus episode, just, I think two or three weeks ago, um, on talking about uh, the role of women in ministry. And today we're going to start a few podcast episodes on that. Um, I don't claim to have the end all answer to the debate, but I do believe I have some insights and it might just help you guys to know what I think. If you're listening to this podcast regularly and if this issue of women in ministry is important to you, maybe you're just curious what I think, what I practice um, and how I lead people in this area. And I'm happy to share it with you. Um, I'm also happy to continue fellowship with you if you have a completely uh, different view on all of this. I'm not mad about it. Um, I'm not trying to you know, fight Christians over it. But ultimately, the debate on what a woman, a woman can and cannot do in New Testament kingdom ministry in our present day, or really just since the beginning of the church age, that, that does have some specific answers. And we have... A couple of verses that are a couple of passages that would seem to heavily restrict what women can and cannot do. And then you have the rest of the context of Scripture that gives me pause when I consider those couple of passages of Scripture. I have to say, am I properly interpreting passage, passages like First Timothy 2, verses 11 through 15, or First Corinthians 14, 
Um, am I properly interpreting those in light of what the rest of Scripture reveals? And so this issue, for those of you that don't know, is temple, typically represented as two opposing views in the church. They are commonly referred to as egalitarian versus complementarian. So you might want to note those words. I may use them in these episodes. So egalitarian versus complementarian. What, what does that mean? Well, egalitarian is just a word that means everybody's equal. I mean, it's not even necessarily a Christianized term. It's just a word. Look it up in the dictionary. It just means a system of belief or a philosophy that regards everybody as equal. And I want to be very, very clear here. I don't know any complementarians that would rise up biblically and theologically and say women are not equal to men in Christ. I don't know anybody that would make a ludicrous statement like that. So when we talk about the egalitarian issue, it's juxtaposed against the complementarian issue. And complementarian says, no, men and women have very specific roles in the kingdom. There are not equal opportunities for men and women in the kingdom. God has reserved some roles for men only. And so women and men complement each other. They work together in their um, personalized God-given roles in order to carry out kingdom ministry. And what we have is we have a culture that um, is inflamed already. I'm not talking about a Christian culture. We have a culture, the American culture, the global culture, where for the past 50 years, there has been some justified pushback against inappropriate male dominance in culture, Um, whether it's chauvinism or misogynism or you know, just unequal opportunities in the marketplace between men and women. Uh, those are issues of social justice in the proper biblical sense. If you if you bristle at the term social justice, then you're going to need to rip out significant portions of your Bible because God is a God of justice. And so much of what is revealed in the Old Testament speaks to social justice in the context of God valuing all human life equally. And so when we hear social justice today, a lot of you who are conservatives, you roll your eyes, you think of Black Lives Matter, you think of just some of the ridiculousness that has happened in our culture um, under the name of social justice. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about real justice. And so for the last 50 years, especially back in the mid and late 1970s with the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, um, the advance of Cosmopolitan Magazine, uh, and Gloria Steinem, who was the publisher then. I don't even know if Cosmo's still out there, but probably is. But it was a rally cry. And, you know, this sounds a little weird now, but women were burning their bras. Like, we won't wear a bra. We don't have to wear a bra because I don't, I don't really know what the logic was behind it, but it was a show of defiance and freedom. And so it's, you know, there is this cultural representation of, uh, egalitarianism that I think culturally, um, you know, it, it has both some credence and some extreme misrepresentation when it comes to looking at it as a, as a Christian. But we're not dealing with any of that. What I'm the reason why I brought that up is because I'm not sure the church is properly discerning the distinction biblically about equality uh, between men and women versus this cultural kind of toxic 
anger, bitterness, thirsting for revenge, a defiance of authority in, in, in the context of the scriptures. And so what we've got is we've got this kind of like toxic seepage into the church that has made this issue of egalitarianism versus complementarianism. It's kind of poisoned it. And then, by the way, let me just go ahead and be an equal opportunity offender. On the other side, you've got chauvinism in the church. You've got a just a straight up disrespect of the daughters of God that is embedded in certain parts of the church. Now, it's not as overt because men are too smart to know uh, that they can't get away. They they can't. They just can't get away with just coming out and saying, "Yeah, I'm a chauvinist. I wish the woman would just go back home, get in her kitchen, cook, clean, raise the kids, and let the men do all the talking." Now, no man's going to say that because he knows he can't get away with it. But I do believe there's still pockets within the church, and maybe not even small pockets, but subtle pockets within the church that would like nothing better than for the women just to sit down and be quiet. And that's not the heart of Jesus, and I'm going to prove that to you in this podcast series. And so, again, I want to say this. This is so important to me. Um, even praying before you know, beginning the podcast today, just, Lord, let me convey your heart on this thing. Because we're not to war with each other, and we will disagree on some matters. And quite frankly, when it boils down to the actual issue, what we're talking about here is, can a woman preach? Can a woman teach? Can a woman lead? And if so, can she do it in full, in the full range, the full spectrum that men can in the church? Or are there some restrictions? Or can she not do it at all? And then what passages of scripture are the control passages? In other words, in, in when you're scientifically looking at something or objectively looking at something, uh, you have a control and you have a variable. What are the control passages of Scripture and what are the variable passages of Scripture? And what is the primary thing that God, who has not changed ever, and him demonstrated earthly in Jesus, and what did Jesus do concerning women, and then the writings of the Apostle Paul and the other writers, if we want to add them in, but I'll look primarily at Paul. What do they convey? Not only what do their words that are inscripturated convey, but what do their actual patterns of ministry that we see in the Gospels and in for Paul in the book of Acts and then in some of his letters? What did he actually do? And then the biggest question is, is are there contradictions in Scripture? So I come from the standpoint that Scripture doesn't contradict itself that God is not schizophrenic and all scripture is breathed out by God. And so God is not inspiring one person to say A over here and then inspiring that same person to say B over here when those A and B are mutually exclusive. So we, we have a lot of issues that bear weight on this. And what I've found is we, we just have a lot of people that haven't thought through the other side of the argument. So what happens is they've got, um, you know, they've got their position they hopefully have some scriptural backing for why they believe what they believe, but they use it instead of um, as you know a, a willingness to enlighten and help. They use it as a flag to plant or a sword to cut, and that's not the heart of Jesus. So the Lord is not only interested in us getting the objective answer to this issue of what women are allowed by Scripture by God 
in ministry. That, that's an objective issue. They either can or they can't. <laughs> that is the objective issue. But he's not only interested in us reading the objective issue, uh, reaching the objective issue. He is very interested in us representing his heart, abiding in his spirit, loving well, blessing those who disagree with us, and not only having the objective data, the doctrine, the theology, the answer, but the test really is, okay, once you reach your conclusion about what is true, how do you serve others with it? Or is it a growing issue of pride in your heart because you're smarter than all the people that disagree with you? So today I'm going to give you just an introduction on, on a couple of things. Um, I, I really want to talk about, you know, I, I'm just going to begin with a very generalized view about women, prophet women, female prophets, leaders, servants in the history of the biblical narrative. And what I want you to remember when I'm giving these is these are God-defined God called, God established women. And in case you missed the introductory episode, I'll go ahead and tell you right here. I tilt egalitarian, but when you hear that word, I want you to also know that egalitarian sometimes is used to obliterate all distinctions between men and women. I'm not that guy. I am not that guy. I believe, and some of you won't like this, I'm, you know, I love you, but I don't care. I don't care if you don't like this. I want you to consider it. Feel free to reject it, but I want you to consider it. I believe that the pattern in scripture is male headship in the church and in the home. Male headship in the church and in the home. And unfortunately, egalitarian views at their extreme completely obliterate any distinction between male and female. And by the way, that is also the same platform that is used now for um, trying to blur the lines in gender and sexuality, which is an entirely different topic. But I want you to know that when it comes to women in ministry, I tilt egalitarian, but I don't tilt as far as many of you want me to or you yourselves might do. So let's just talk a little bit about, let's just go back to the old Testament. I'm going to try to get a little Old Testament for you, just some seasoning in your thinking, and then a little New Testament in your thinking. And that's all we're going to do in this episode today. But when, when I look in my Old Testament, this is what I see. Female preachers, prophets, and female leaders. They are maybe rare, but they're clearly not disallowed. And they are inscripturated. So in the authority of scripture, they are defined primarily as prophets and in Deborah's case, a judge. And then in some narratives, you see them emerging as leaders in a nation. And so the thing that I learned right off the bat is the heart of God is not that women cannot lead and cannot speak and cannot preach. That is the heart of God from the Old Testament. Now, I already know where some of you are going. Discipline yourself to walk with me through this. I'm not saying this is the end-all answer. What I'm saying is this is a context that has to be considered. You have to consider the overall context of Scripture. So where it might be rare to see female leaders and prophetesses or prophets, I just like calling them prophets, they're female, they're prophets, 
And so they're rare, but they're clearly not disallowed. And so some of you may not know, well, who, who are the women in the Bible that are called prophets? Well, let me give you some Old Testament women. So everybody should know Miriam. That's the sister of Moses. And she is clearly, plainly called in Exodus 15, verse 20, a prophetess. So we're not voting on that. God says she's a prophetess. There we go. There's one. You have the prophetess Huldah, H-U-L-D-A-H, Huldah. She's found in 2 Chronicles 34, verse 22. And what's interesting about Huldah is the king, King Josiah, he's in a little bit of a crisis. They found the law of God. He's working with Shaphan, the scribe, and he's working with Hilkiah, the priest. And they find the law of God hidden in the temple. And they recognize, oh my goodness, we have not been obeying this law for decades upon decades upon decades. So they rediscover the word of God. Josiah is the king, not a religious leader, but as a civic leader instantly recognizes we have been in violation of the law of God. I think we're in trouble with God. But Josiah needs somebody to speak to it from the spiritual pinpoint, from the heart of God. And so interestingly, he's got the scribe, he's got the Bible scholar, Shaphan, he's got Hilkiah, the priest, but he doesn't ask them to give, give the word of the Lord. He says, I want you two guys to go to Huldah. Huldah is a prophetess. By the way, Jeremiah was around at that time, and so was Zephaniah, two male prophets. But Josiah and Hilkiah and Shaphan go to Huldah, the prophetess, and she delivers the word of the Lord concerning what was going on in this time of crisis where they recognized they had been disobeying the Lord. I just find that very interesting that there were two male prophets, but Josiah got the word of the Lord from a female prophet named Huldah. Then you got Deborah. Everybody loves the story of Deborah from the book of Judges. I did a whole series of sermons on her. It was fantastic. It just thrilled me. I want to do it again. It's been, a, been several years. But Deborah is called an official prophet in Judges 4.4. She's also shown to be a civic judge, a national leader in Israel, and a very powerful one. Now, God raised her up along. God raised up Huldah. God raised up Miriam. These are women that God not, not, not some liberal, not some feminist with an ax to grind, but God. God said, I want my daughters to lead. I want my daughters to preach slash prophesy. I want my daughters to speak my word with authority. Now, please don't just gloss over that and say, well, that's just Old Testament. Well, what else are you just de denying in the Old Testament? Is it part of the Bible or not? So I want you to think. I'm going to challenge you to think on these things. And then, of course, you, you, have, you do have Isaiah. Many people don't know this. Isaiah, although she's unnamed, Isaiah's wife in Isaiah 8.3 is a prophetess. So you've got Isaiah, the prophet, married to a prophetess. You've got Deborah, the prophet, and the judge. You've got Huldah, the prophet. You've got Miriam, the prophet. Now, I may circle back at a different time and unpack a list of leaders. What am I doing here? I'm trying to, I'm trying to get your thinking to say, oh, I had not considered that or, oh, I've not considered that enough. But then you've got women that were raised up. You've got like, good night, Esther. What about Esther? I mean, moving in the midst of national crisis for her people, she becomes a hero. And she does, in a sense, lay it all on the line. Now, it doesn't say she's a prophet. It doesn't even classify her as a leader, but everything that is described of her shows her taking authority and saving the entire people of Israel when there was a Holocaust pronounced against them. Not a small thing. 
Now, just in case, you know, that, that may not motivate you to think you, I'm not trying to, you know, saying, okay, I've answered the question. I'm just saying, could you consider this as we recognize that godly people who equally love Jesus disagree on the roles of women in the church? And what I'm saying is, you go back to your Old Testament, it's very clear. It may not have been as predominant as men, but it certainly wasn't disallowed for women to be prophets, preachers, and leaders. They spoke with authority for God because God told them they could. Now, we get to the New Testament. Are there any prophets, any female prophets in the New Testament? Well, that's a great question, and it should be asked and answered. Um, you go to the book of Luke, chapter 2. Y'all know where I'm going. Anna. Anna, the woman who devoted herself to staying in the temple and fasting and praying. She was an intercessor. She was praying for Israel and the coming of the Messiah. And she stayed in the temple night and day, fasting, seeking the face of the Lord. And the Bible calls her a prophetess. So in the days of Jesus... So we, we, he's not gone to the cross. He's not been resurrected. This is shortly after his birth. But we clearly see from our Old Testament division in the Bible, now we're in the New Testament division of the Bible, and prophetesses are still there. Okay? Again, rare, but existing, not prohibited, allowed, called of God a prophetess. When you get to the book of Acts, so Jesus has lived, died, raised, and ascended. And then you get into the early chapters of the book of Acts. So the church is gathered. And I didn't even take time, and I will in a different podcast episode, to take time about how Jesus Christ shifted the cultural and religious view of women in three and a half years by his ministry. He welcomed women into his inner circle. He taught women as a rabbi. He allowed, listen, he violated, I said I was going to do this in a different episode, but let me give you some of it here. He, he violated the cultural expectation where men should not be with women at all. Women were seen as defiled because of their menstrual cycles. Isn't that crazy? Women could not go to synagogue when they were on their periods. Women could not go to temple when they were on their periods. Women were always suspected of being the ones who cause sexual infidelity. And Jesus flipped that. And he said, oh no, guys, when you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. But men were typically culturally and even religiously exonerated from any issues dealing with adultery and lust and fornication. It was always blamed on the woman. Therefore, culturally and religiously, rabbis and, and religious leaders didn't associate with women. And here comes Jesus on the scene, and he's calling women, and he's ministering with women, and he's letting minister, women minister to him. And it was infuriating religious people. So Jesus, without even making declarations about where women could and could not serve, by his lifestyle, by his ministry, by the way he operated, he welcomed tons of women. They're named. They're all over the place. And they were with him and faithful and serving and traveling and learning. And then when you get to the book of Acts, you get into chapter number one and all of the church after the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus said to them before he ascended, go wait in Jerusalem, you'll be endued with power from on high. So go wait for power to come. So they're all in the upper room. And the Bible specifically says that the women are there in Acts 1.14. His mother is there, Mary and the other women, they're there in the upper room. And then in Acts 2.17, the power of God hits. 
the Holy Spirit comes. Fire, tongues, prophecy, spilling out into the streets, declaring the wonderful works of God. Let me just ask you, was that just the fellas? No, you have to be reasonable. Why would we say, no, it was just the men. It was just the men. Absolutely it wasn't because Peter said, and we'll get to this in a different episode too, Peter equated the prophecy in Joel 2 about the outpouring of the Spirit. He equated that with inaugurating that prophecy. It was inaugurated and came into play. It started in motion in Acts chapter 2 in this very upper room, baptism of the Holy Spirit, where the tongues of fire and the prophetic voices came up. And it wasn't just the guys. Because you see in Joel chapter 2 that God said, in the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And then he goes on to say, and again, I'm going to do this, I'm going to break this down in a different podcast. But he says, your daughters will prophesy in the last days. Now, I want to be very clear here. And I got to get back on track in a second because we're talking about female prophets and leaders in the New Testament. A person cannot prophesy and be silent. A person cannot speak the word of the Lord and be quiet. And in the last days, which was inaugurated at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and continues until this day, again, people debate that, but I think it's very clear that all of the Joel 2 prophecy has not been fulfilled. Therefore, if it's not fulfilled, the last day's prophecy can't be finished. So we're still in it. And as we're in the last days, the Bible says there'll be a continual outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And one of the manifestations of it is your daughters are going to proclaim the word of the Lord. So we have an issue now for those that say the women can't speak. And we'll break that down a little bit further. So you've got Anna, you've got the women in the upper room, you've got Philip's four daughters, Acts 21. Back into the book of Acts, Philip's four unmarried daughters are all prophetesses. So <laughs> I'm just asking you, is where did the shift come that says women can't preach, women can't prophesy? And then the real question is, okay, Jeff, maybe they can preach, maybe they can prophesy, but they can't teach in authority. And of course, that's the first Timothy two verses 11 through 15, which we'll do a full episode on that. And I get it, man. It's a problematic passage. But if you interpret that passage as the control passage, the end all answer for women in ministry, then I need you to start a podcast or write a paper and explain what do we do with all of this other stuff, this other material, this other um, examples in scripture that clearly say God likes his daughters to speak for him. So do you see the tension? Do you feel the tension? Hey, here's a weird example. Nobody talks about this, but I think it's interesting. I wouldn't use this as my primary example about why women can preach, but all the way in the back of the uh, Bible, in the book of Revelation, in chapter number two, Jesus is giving a, a personal word to the church at Thyatira. At Thyatira, the, their, their, Jesus has some serious, intense, like hard stuff to say to them. And part of that is Jesus criticizes this woman who, who calls herself a prophet. By the way, this is the same Greek word used for Anna. So this woman is saying, I'm a legit prophet. 
I'm in the order of Anna. She doesn't say that specifically, but the same word is that she's representing herself as a legitimized prophet, like the word used to define Anna. But Jesus indicts her for teaching and deceiving his servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So whoever this woman is claiming to be a true prophet, true woman prophet, female prophet of God, yet she's leading the people the wrong way. And before you say, ha ha, that's why women shouldn't do it. Guys, think about this. There are massive amounts of false prophets exposed and massive amounts of scripture dealing with false prophets, and most of them are men. So you can't say, you can't use this as a case study or, or, you know, a a piece of evidence saying that's why women ought not be prophets because they're susceptible to being false prophets. Well, you're going to have a hard time making that kind of wimpy case. That's a flimsy case. Uh, what, what Jesus is doing is very interesting to me here. So the woman is clearly, clearly a leader in the church of Thyatira. So she's got influence. She may have position. She's a leader. But unfortunately, the character and behavior of this woman did not meet the litmus test of Jesus for what constitutes a genuine prophet. So he indicts her. But here's the thing. What's often missed is that Jesus doesn't indict the woman for being a leader because she's a woman, but he indicts her for being an immoral leader, a false teacher. Now, if there was a place for Jesus Christ, the son of God, to speak here and say, why is a woman teaching at all? Don't you know? I don't let women teach in my church. I don't let women speak in my church. I don't let women lead in my church. This is where you should do it. Now, I'm not here to, 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 I'm making a very theoretical, hypothetical case. But what I'm saying is nowhere does Jesus say, hey, she shouldn't be teaching. She's a woman. That's why it's wrong. No, he doesn't say anything about her being a female. He says her content is, um, it's unequal. It's not parallel with his heart and with the, the whole concept of biblical righteousness. I find that interesting. I thought myself, man, if he's going to indict a, a woman for being out of line and doing something she's not allowed to do, because Paul said, because this would have been after Paul wrote the letter to First Timothy and the book, book of First Corinthians, where the two trouble passages are, Jesus could have said, hey, didn't I, didn't I send my apostle Paul to tell y'all women can't preach and teach and lead in the church? But he doesn't say any of that. He says, this woman who is a leader, I indict her for what she's teaching, not that she's teaching, but what she's teaching. Something to consider. And then let me finish up today just by, um, because my time's about gone. Um, Paul mentions primarily in Romans 16, I want you to just get this. These are co-labors. Very interesting. Search the scriptures and find where Paul mentions pastors or teachers by name, men. This guy's a pastor. This guy's a teacher. This guy's a, you know, he doesn't doesn't do that. Paul usually uses terms like co-laborers, fellow servants, partners in ministry. He does use apostles. He does talk about elders. He talks about bishops. He talks about overseers. And then he mentions in Ephesians four, the fivefold, but I don't, I can't think of a single place where Paul says, this man is a pastor. This man is a teacher. When he's describing men and attaching their actual individual names to it, it's always in the context of co-laborer or servant or fellow worker. And it's interesting that he uses those same terms for women. People don't think about that because people say, well, he's never, no, no women are named as pastors or, you know, authorized officiated teachers. Well, he doesn't do that with men either. But interestingly, the men that he mentions with these titles, he also uses the same titles interchangeably for women. 
You got Phoebe in Romans 16. I'm just going to go through some names. Phoebe in Romans 16. She's clearly a servant. Most people think she's a deacon. Phoebe had an official capacity to the extent where she's named in a list. The second person named in the list in Romans 16 is Prisca or Priscilla. This is the wife of Achilla. She's uh, uh, Priscilla and Achilla are mentioned six times, <clears throat> excuse me, in the New Testament together. But Priscilla is more often mentioned before her husband. And many people think that denotes that she had the kind of the, the higher level of influence because that's the pattern often in scripture. The person with the most influence in a pair is listed first. And she is more often mentioned before her husband. In Acts chapter 18, you, you see Priscilla along with Achilla. They're known for helping to teach Apollos. Apollos is an eloquent man of the scriptures, but he did not have a full, precise theological view of the gospel. And so the Bible is very clear, very clear that Priscilla, yes, with her husband, but she was involved, was teaching Apollos. What do you do with that? And Paul knew that. And Paul's affirming her here. Now, if she's an apostate, how dare she be teaching? She's violating what I wrote. I can't believe she's doing it. That's where, why is Paul actually giving her credentials and affirmation in the book of Romans uh, chapter 16? They led a house church. So Priscilla led a house church along with her husband. You have the same kind of thing with Nympha in Colossians 4.15. Nympha was a house church host and manager. It's a woman. Then you get to Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. The two weird names here, Yeodia and Syntyche. And these women, although they were feuding in this context of Philippians 4, but Paul's telling everybody, these women ministered alongside of me. They are my fellow servants. And then you have a woman named Mary, not the mother of Jesus, but Mary in Romans 16, verse 6. And she's mentioned as a very hardworking co-laborer of Paul. And then, of course, we have what I consider a very, very significant issue of the woman named Junia, who is listed as a fellow apostle who had been imprisoned with Paul alongside of Andronicus. Now, there's been a lot of effort to change Junia's name to Julie or, or to a male form of it. And so people want to say, well, that's not actually a woman. But it's very clear that the name was commonly female. But in order to fit the narrative that there are no female leaders, they're actually tampering with the word of God to fit the narrative of complementarianism. And I disagree with that. So the complementarian needs to say, what do I do with Junia, the fellow apostle who had been imprisoned with Paul? She must have been leading in order to warrant being imprisoned. She wasn't baking bread. She wasn't cleaning dishes. There's nothing wrong with a woman doing that. But listen, what I'm saying is, she was labeled in the Bible as an apostle. And so when we get down to it, there's no fewer than 18 women that are mentioned in the Pauline letters. 18 women. Okay, you say, well, Jeff, that's not too many. No, but it's more than zero. And the point is, is that in order for the hardcore view of negating women in ministry to be valid, we have to answer these 18 women that are mentioned. And the chances are there were a whole lot more that never made it into the letters. 16 of those 18 are identified by name. And yes, Paul mentions some of these women along with a male relative, but most of them are mentioned completely independent of any man. They're standalone they're God-ordained, God-equipped, God-gifted, and God-initiated uh, co-laborers along with the Apostle Paul. And again, he's describing them with his favorite ministry terms that he also used to describe men. 
co-worker, a deacon slash minister, a diakonos is the Greek. And even the title of apostle, and he's using in these words for both male and female ministry colleagues. So I'm going to wrap up today's podcast and just say this. I, I think if we could consider all of these things that I've shared today, consider those as the starting point as we focus our discussions about women in ministry. Let, let's, let's actually use these as the broad context of the specific stuff we're going to talk about. I don't think anything I shared today settles the debate, but it should give everybody a moment to consider, hmm, have I just narrowed in on a couple of passages of Scripture and made up my mind, or am I giving, am I giving um, honor to the total representation of God's heart in Scripture. So we begin with these as our starting point, and, and we continue to focus in our discussions on where the daughters of God belong in ministry. And, and instead of just going to 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35, or 1 Timothy 2, 12, we, I think we're better off if we consider the full context and then consider those actual verses. So that's all the time I've got today. I went a few minutes long. Appreciate you guys tuning in. There'll be another one next week. I may do a couple of bonus episodes if I can find the time to record, but uh, hunker down with me, man. Consider these things. Again, if you if you disagree uh, and if you agree, you can write me at jeff at maverickmisfit.com, jeff at maverickmisfit.com. Email me. And uh, the reason why I'm doing this series is because a man named Micaiah, a good friend of mine, uh, wrote an email. I said, hey, bro, can you talk about this stuff? Because there is a lot of confusion and disagreement, and we just want to know what the Bible says. So it's my privilege to give you that. Um, explore it yourself. Study the scriptures. Pray. And then ask yourself, ask yourself, what is the heart of God in the last days when he pours out his spirit upon all flesh? And he himself said his daughters are going to speak for him. And is that consistent with us saying, well, yeah, but they can't? I don't think it's consistent. We will get to a place where I probably give pause to some of you that are full-blown egalitarians who have no distinction between men and women. I'm going to talk about that, and I'll bait you with that. That's coming up in an upcoming episode, and we will talk to you next time. God bless. Have you picked up a copy of Jeff's book, Figuring It Out As I Go? His life story of abandonment as a child, an embrace of the occult and addiction as a teenager, and a nearly deadly battle with depression and rage as a young adult serves as an intense backdrop to Jeff's supernatural conversion at the age of 24. From there, Jeff writes of powerful seasons of deliverance, healing, and breakthrough, which were followed by tragedy, betrayal, and deep challenges which only God could turn around. If you want to hear a powerful account of the triumph of God's grace, and Jeff's surprising journey into the mysteries of the Holy Spirit, pick up a copy of Figuring It Out As I Go at jefflyle.com or wherever else you buy books. You can also download a copy of Jeff narrating Figuring Out As I Go on audible.com.